Hey, good morning, Watermark. I hope you're all well. Um, today we're in Acts chapter 10. I, uh, I'm not going to do the entire chapter. I'm going to start somewhere around verse 9, I think. And we're going to read down to about verse 23. And then we are going to make some observations about this text. Today is going to be about sort of a couple of different things, sort of how how God revealed God's self to us, how doctrines are formed. We're going to talk about the doctrine of justification. Um, somehow all of these things play into this passage, and we're going to talk about that. Um, also, I wanted, to, I wanted to let you know over the next few weeks, um, I think things will begin to look different uh, with sort of the video stream and everything like that. We're going to begin to start trying to live stream from the church with um, our band, um, try to figure out, when we can open again, what this, how this will work, how this will function. And we can't do that unless we start taking steps now to be ready a few months from now, whenever that may be. We have to take steps now to sort of um, get in the rhythm. I don't know if you realize, but when we stopped meeting back in March, there were <clears throat> hundreds of people in motion. Like there was this well-oiled machine that we had created over years and years and years. And that whole thing has come to a halt and a stop. And so we're slowly going to sort of try to figure out what this is going to look like for us in the future. So um, it may look different over the next few weeks. We, uh, we're going to, I'm going to probably preach some sermons from over there, have the band lead from over there. Our goal is to get actually a live service going on a Sunday morning. So you'll see that. And that way we can sort of like um, have that time back together to designate to like do this live, have the band together singing and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, so that when we can uh, slowly start bringing people back in, we'll be ready. We won't have to wait, you know? Um, so let's pray, and then we're going to jump into Acts chapter 10. We're going to start at verse 9, okay? Uh, let's pray, shall we? Father, be with us as we take some time wherever we are, whatever time it is, for whoever is joining us. I pray that you would be present in it. I pray that uh, as we take this time, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you would give us some things that we need. I, I want to lift up all those who are part of our physical community. I, I, I pray that you um, are taking care of them, and we are taking care of each other, um, that we will continually remember each other and uh, reach out. I lift up those who are joining us from um, other places in America and in the world, um, I lift them up as well, whatever situation they're in that brings them to this particular um, sermon uh, or this teaching or this prayer or these songs, whatever it was that brought them to virtually join us here, I pray that you would be in that, that you would keep them um, close to you. Thank you, Father. Uh, continue uh, to guide us forward. Be with us as we, as we read these passages. Bring some new things to our mind that we need to hear and see. Thank you. In your name. Amen. All right. Apparently my dog's alive, barking back there. That's how it is now. That's how we live. Okay. Um, Acts chapter 10, let's start in verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on a roof to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds, and a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. 
The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back up into heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. And Peter went down and said to them, I am the one you were looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius, the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. And then Peter invited the men into, uh, into the house to be his guests. Okay. Um, we're not going to cover all that. And I, I, you notice I started at verses nine. I didn't do one through eight. Um, we're going to look at all that another time. Uh, for now, I wanted to sort of get our bearings on some, some things that are happening here with Peter. Um, chapter 10 is actually a, a much bigger deal than people give it credit for. Uh, chapter 10 here of the book of Acts is about growth. It's about, um, it's about how God changes our minds about how God functions. God changes our minds about himself. Um, it's also about the idea of justification. And a lot of people don't realize this. Um, this week, I want to focus squarely on this mystical experience and, and what it meant for Peter, how it changed his mind. And I want to start by talking about the idea of justification, because since the time of Luther, it has been really popular to talk about justification in relation to salvation. Um, we... Uh, I mean, the language that we received from the reformers about justification basically has told us that, that justification is the primary act of salvation. The way we are get saved is but we are justified, that God takes his morality and goodness and puts it on us and removes our sin from our lives and puts it on himself. And so we're sort of trading identities. And this is how the reformers thought of justification. Um, it was thought of as basically we're saved because we have been justified. Um, and they use the words like imputing, like Jesus imputing his own righteousness to you. And in the same way, your sins are taken and, and you receive God's righteousness, sort of like a cosmic trading of a moral state, right? Um, and in Luther's day, this made sense. In medieval theology, this made a lot of sense. Um, but justification itself, that word is a word that has undergone a lot of, of change in the last century. Um, really as a result of, of like, archaeological discoveries of ancient texts being found and translated and realizing how this word was used in a first century Palestinian context. Um, and we've corrected some of our errors on how we understand the idea of justification. So I, I want to talk a little bit about that and you'll see how it plays in, okay? Um, our understanding of, of the way that Palestinians use this word has, has changed um, a lot. The Jewish people we now know um, believe that they were saved not in a legalistic way, not by works. They were not, Judaism in the first century was not actually a legalistic religion as we tend to think it was. And by legalistic, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, I mean a, a works-based salvation where they believe they went to heaven because they did good works. They never believed that. We know this. Um, they're what's called a covenant gnomism. Gnome is the word for law. Um, here's what that means. Um, they believe they were saved by the covenant that God had made the Abrahamic covenant at the very beginning. The law came after that, okay? The law was put there to assist them um, in the covenant, in their keeping of the covenant, okay? So they had placed their faith in the covenant 
that God had made with them. So they believed they were saved by faith, okay? Um, and they also believed, though, that they were justified, not by their faith, but by their works. Um, and that's confusing if this was all brand new to you, but I'll keep going and maybe this will help make sense. Um, you might think, like, wait, justification and salvation are the same thing, but that is a medieval theological idea. That is not how the Palestinian first century Jewish Palestinian Christians, Jewish Christians believe this. Um, to be justified in the minds of the early Jews was to basically prove to yourself that you are one of God's people. Justification was not something you did before God. It was something you did before other people, okay, in their mind. So let me give you an example, an everyday example of how we sort of use this same idea today. Um, if somebody walks up to you and they says, and, and they say, hey, uh, I'm a police officer and I have a few questions for you, okay? Um, you might first start off being skeptical, especially if they're wearing like plain clothes and you, you maybe a suit, maybe a trench coat as if they're coming to your door. I'm assuming they're wearing a trench coat. Um, maybe that's the FBI. Um, and you might think to yourself, hmm, is this really a police officer? Uh, because that means something. If they are a police officer, uh, then I, I guess I need to cooperate and I should trust what they're saying. Um, but how do I know that they are who they claim to really be? And so you're going to ask them to justify their claim that they are a police officer, okay? Are you really who you claim to be and how do I know? So if you wanted them to prove that they were a police officer, you're basically asking them to justify themselves. Justify that statement. You're a cop? Justify that statement. And you might respond by saying, show me your badge. And if they do, if they show you a badge and tell you what precinct they work for and blah, 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 they have justified themselves in your eyes as a cop, okay? Now, in their day, in the first century Jewish day, so this is a modern day understanding of justification, of, of really how justification works the way they understood it. In their day, if someone was claiming to be an Israelite, a child of Abraham, Jewish, a citizen of Israel, and if they wanted to be welcomed into the temple, right? Um, and there's all kinds of things that were open up to you if you were one of God's people. Um, then basically, you would have to justify your statement. And so the way that you would justify that statement was through keeping the law. Um, the Torah is the law. And not necessarily all of the Torah. There were three sort of main things that if you fulfilled these things, it was obvious that you were fulfilling all of the Torah, right? These are like placeholders for the Torah, right? Keeping the Sabbath was the first one. Um, eating kosher was the second one, the, the food dietary restrictions, and circumcision was the third. So if you wanted to justify like that you were a child of Israel, you would basically show people would be able to look at you and say, well, obviously this is one of God's people. And God could look at you and be proud that you're one of his people as well, because you were justifying the statement that you were one of God's people by keeping the Sabbath holy, eating the right foods, and circumcision. You could prove it. This was your, you weren't saved by this, but this is how you remained in God's people. If you didn't do these things, you were considered not one of God's people, and, and you were ignored or pushed out or sort of ostracized, right? Um, a person who kept these three things, though, was justified, and they were declared a righteous person. Like, they are righteous, they are fulfilling their end of the deal, right? They're fulfilling the covenant. Now, that, by the way, is why Paul, whose entire ministry is centered on, again, bringing Gentiles into the church. That's, that's Paul's main focus. That is why Paul is 
always writing about these three things. That's why he's always writing about whether or not we have to keep the Sabbath, whether or not we have to eat the dietary food restrictions, whether or not we have to be circumcised, whether or not the Gentiles had, whether or not the Gentiles have to keep these things because the Jews wanted the Gentiles coming into the church to perform these works. And if they wanted to become a part of this new Israel, this, what we call the church, the re restored, reconstituted Israel. Um, if they wanted to join, then they had to keep in their, uh, in their minds, they had to justify themselves by keeping the law. And this was a constant problem in the church. And Paul argues, no, 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 no. The Gentiles aren't justified by keeping the Torah. The Gentiles aren't justified by works. Um, their evidence, the way that they will be justified is by their faith, their pistis, their allegiance. We can look at their faith and know their allegiance, that, that they that Jesus is king and they put no one else before Christ, that they follow Christ, that they live as the, the, the life that Christ was living. And their life, basically, you will see the fruit on the tree, right? They are justified. We will be able to know that they were one of us. They, the, and the world will know as well. Um, in other words, they are justified by their faith, their allegiance to Christ, Okay. That is a, a sort of shortened Cliff Notes seminary course on how modern Bible scholars understand justification. And yes, that might be slightly different. If you're interested in more reading on this, let me recommend a couple books just while we're here. Um, um, E.P. Sanders, uh, Paul and Palestinian Judaism. That's one book. I'll, I'll put the book covers here for you. Um, Paul and Palestinian Judaism. Uh, um, uh, N.T. Wright wrote an entire book just called Justification. All right. It was written back when him and John Piper were going back and forth about the meaning of justification. John Piper takes Luther's uh, view. N.T. Wright takes what's called the new perspective. Um, and that's what I take as well. So there's some book recommendations about it. And you can see the back and forth and how our understanding has changed. Because God is changing. Oh, perfect. Because God is changing our understanding of God all the time. That is what God is doing. That is what God is doing in Acts chapter 10. Um, that is what God is doing today. Always revealing God's self to us so that we can better understand and live as an example of the divine. <laughs> Every time I get up to preach, an entire crew gets out and starts mowing their lawns. Okay, so if you hear that, sorry, that's what I'm hearing. Now, with all of that in mind, let's look at, uh, at, at, at verse 9, um, and let's read 9 through like 14 again, and we're going to talk about this. It says, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was, was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Now, Peter's hungry. He goes up on the rooftop. Someone's cooking lunch for him while he waits. He gets into like a hungry trance <laughs> um, and he's praying. And uh, the, the Greek word for the trance literally is the Greek word ekstasis. Everyone say ekstasis. Great. Um, this, this word literally means ek is out, he's outside of himself. Okay. It's an interesting description of what he's going through. He's outside of himself. Um, and he says it sees, he sees heaven open up and the sheet comes down and, um, and, and um, basically, this, on this sheet is animals, all kinds of animals. Um, basically, God is lowering this, this buffet 
I guess they're all alive and mooing and hissing and barking. Okay. I don't know. All kinds of stuff. And this sheet is being lowered down, this buffet, by its four corners. And so there's some symbolic language here. The four corners, ancient listeners of this text, ancient readers would hear this and say, that's a reference to the four corners of the earth all through the Old Testament. Um, it's basically animals from all over the world. Like it's all the supply of food, all the animals in the world sort of being lowered down for Peter to see. And the voice says, hey, kill something and eat it. And I want you to notice Peter's first response. It's to argue with God. And the reason he's arguing with God is fascinating to me. Um, and I want to talk about that. He says, look, um, I, I don't do that. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm a child of God. God, you may, you may know that I'm a child of God. I'm, I'm one of God's people, God. And I'm very devout to God, God. And I must disobey you, God, because I obey God. Like, no, he, he basically says, like, um, I'm a righteous Israelite. I am justified because I keep the laws. Um, my justification relies upon my adherence to the laws of God. And so his identity, what in his mind justifies him is his obedience to the kosher laws. That's why he says, I have never, I have never eaten anything I shouldn't eat ever. That's how you know I'm a holy Jewish man, right? If Peter obeys God now, he actually has to lose his identity as a religious person to follow God, which is fascinating. This is the same thing we see with Joseph and Mary, right? In order to move forward, in order for Joseph to marry this woman who is miraculously pregnant, right? He has to, he's a Sadiq Jewish boy. He's righteous. And he has to give up his identity as a righteous person to actually follow God and what God is doing. We see this over and over and over again. God is always asking us to give up our righteous religious identity and enter into the work that God is calling us to do. Jesus did this regularly. People are accusing him of being, of, of hanging out with all the wrong people, of palling around with terrorists. Um, um, the disciples are constantly being accused of, of even at Pentecost. Um, they're like, look at these drunks. What a, you know, like God is constantly calling people to give up religiosity and their righteousness, if you will, to follow God. And it seems to be one of the requirements of following God. What made Peter holy in the eyes of everyone around him was actually keeping him from obeying God in this particular moment. And so it's a very typical thing for God to do. But it's also a typical thing for, for, for God's people to do, to use the Bible and use their religion to disobey God. We use the Bible to silence Jesus all the time. Um, we use the Old Testament to argue for the death penalty, right? Um, we use Romans 13 uh, to justify us going along with sinful and oppressive decisions of world leaders. Like, we only use Romans 13, really, when it's our guy in office who's doing something bad. When it's the other guy, we tend to say, well, we tend to ignore Romans 13 and say, he's evil, disobey him, right? Now, <laughs> there is so much lawn work going on outside my windows. Whatever. Um, Tertullian actually writes about this. Tertullian uh, was uh, one of the early church fathers. If you were part of, here's a plug for it, uh, History for Lunch last week, I, talk, I taught on Tertullian. Um, a fascinating uh, Western church father. Um, he was a pacifist, as all the early church fathers were for the first 300 years. 
Um, and Tertullian writes that um, basically in one of his writings on nonviolence, um, he, he points out that a lot of Christians were arguing that, well, since Moses carried a rod and Aaron carries this buckle, uh, it was something that they would use for self-defense in the ancient world. Um, uh, and uh, something that to secure a weapon to their side as well. Uh, since Joshua led this warring army, then it follows that we might find it acceptable as, as God's people to use violence because God's people in the past used violence. And so we can use violence now. And Tertullian pushes against that. He says, how dare you basically use the Bible to silence Jesus? He points to Jesus who heals the soldier that Peter struck with, with the sword. And he see, and, 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 and then Jesus says, basically put your sword back in its place for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And he says, when Jesus disarmed Peter, he was disarming all of us. And then he proves his way forward by going to the cross and not fighting back by establishing a kingdom of peace, not by the sword. Right. So Tertullian points out as that, that the things Christians have always done is to use the Bible to disobey God. We use the Bible when it suits us on, uh, a lot of times, um, when things are pragmatic. We use the Bible in very pragmatic ways, right, um, to defend things that we already believe. And we ignore the parts of the Bible, like the entire Sermon on the Mount, when we, when we are being called to actually live in sacrificial ways that are difficult and not easy. There are times when we hear people say, you know, the Word of God commands this, but one of the main points, like, I always, I'm constantly, I'm hearing people say, you know, the word of God says this, the word of God says that, the word of God says that. And then we quote the Bible. But one of the main points that the Bible is written to show us is that the word of God is not the Bible. The word of God is Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. John is very clear about this. Um, the Bible is not the word of God. Jesus is. Um, Jesus is what God has to say. All of the Bible is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the one through whom we read the Bible. Um, Tertullian and for all the early church fathers, they believe that Jesus was the full expression of God. Okay. Jesus is what God has to say. The Bible must be interpreted through the lens of Jesus. Jesus must not be interpreted through the lens of the Bible. We must interpret the rest of te the text through Jesus. And, and when we're reading about Christ calling upon the spirit to be present with us, the spirit of Christ to be with us, um, Jesus, I want to be clear, Jesus is not simply one equal voice in the text. He's not one voice among many equal voices, okay? He is the premier voice in the text. He is the primary voice in the text. He is the one through which we must read everyone else's words in the text. And so, if Jesus tells you to eat bacon, like Peter here, you don't answer with, I'd love to, Jesus, but Moses said not to. And if Jesus tells you to love your enemies, you don't answer with, look, I'd love to love my enemies, but, but I can't because people like Joshua didn't love their enemies. They wiped them out. So, you know, like, and if Jesus tells a woman at the res at, in the garden of, 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 of resurrection, right, to go and proclaim the resurrection to the other apostles, we don't say, look, I'm sorry, um, I would love to listen to this woman tell about the resurrection of Jesus and proclaim this very first Easter sermon, but I'm sorry, Paul said that women are to be silent. Obviously, there are ways to understand the text in light of Jesus. Jesus is the primary lens through which we read things. Paul must be read in light of Jesus and what Christ did at Pentecost, right? Um, and when Jesus calls outsiders into his church, when Jesus says, 
There are people at the margins and I'm bringing them in. Like in this, like in Acts 10, bringing in Gentiles, people who have never been a part of this church. When Jesus says, I'm going to bring some people in um, to the people of God that have never been able to be a part of this thing, that have always been ostracized and always pushed away. And it's going to get really messy. And it's going to be really disruptive. And it's going to be hard, but I'm bringing them into the church. You say, you look at Christ and you say, okay, I will make space for them. That's what you do. Um, that if, that is, if, if, if God is doing something, if the spirit of Christ is there, if the words of Christ are there, that is what we do. Christ is the primary voice in the text that, 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 that soars above every other voice in the text, okay? Now, one of the main works of God in our lives um, is to reveal himself to you, to us. The main thing that God is doing in the world is revealing himself to humanity and helping us to understand God. That is God's main goal. God is in the business of changing your ideas about himself. This is what God has always been about. The Old Testament um, is a collection. Here's, here's how to understand the Old Testament. It is a collection of the history of God's people and, and specifically a collection of, of all the times that God has changed their minds about their own God. Okay? When you read the Old Testament, what you see is constantly minds changing. It's click forward, click forward, click forward. The ever-expanding understanding of who God is. And let me, let me, let me point some of these things out to you, okay? Um, when Genesis was written, the entire world was telling creation stories about, about their gods, about the gods that they believe existed. They were violent. They were hateful. They were, these gods were, were, were creating humans to be slaves. Um, they, were, they, they had specific ways that they understood gods. And then Yahweh steps in and tells Israel this whole new story about how there was one God um, who was loving and who created the entire world out of love, who created human beings out of love um, to take part in um, the community of God, who God is, right? Um, that there's not all these many gods fighting, uh, vying and fighting for, for power and using violence. There is one single God who creates everything, not not so that he can have some slaves to, to run, but so that he can have something to love, right? Um, and then we have episodes like this, like Abraham standing over his son with this knife, and he's about to sacrifice his son to God. Why? Because gods have always asked you to sacrifice your children to them. That's what they've always done. And so God does what the gods have always done. Yahweh says, hey, Abraham, go sacrifice your son on the mountain. He's like, oh, okay. And he has to. He doesn't want to, but he has to because this is what God's asking. When God's asking this, you do it. And he gets him to the top and he says, no, stop. I want to change your mind about this. And he says, this ends here now and forever. And he points to an animal and the animal is then sacrificed. And so God ends human sacrifice. He is changing people's minds about who God is. Then... A little farther down the road, everyone thought the gods were stationary, that they existed in these particular places in the world. And when God actually calls and forms a people, where does God meet those people? Not in a city, not in a nation, not in a country, in the absolute wilderness, in the middle of nowhere. Why? Because this God belongs to no nation. This God, this God is over every nation. This God moves with 
is people. He is not stationary. So this is another way that God is revealing God's um, self to humanity. And the Old Testament are these cliques forward. Everyone thought that God wanted sacrifices and spilt blood, and God accommodated this, and he allows them to offer sacrifices. No longer people, though, just animals. And eventually, God reveals through the prophets. He starts speaking to them and says, I'm revealing something new to you, by the way. Um, um, you can keep this going, but what God really wants is not sacrifices of flesh, but sacrifices of the heart for his people to pour themselves out, for the immigrant, for the poor, the enslaved, the downtrodden, to set people free who need to be made free. This is what God is doing. Man, I wish I was like standing up walking around right now, I'm just, but I'm sitting in a chair. Um, everyone also believes that God was binitarian. They, they, they mostly in the Old Testament thought of God as like father and son. Um, there's no Trinitarian language really in the Old Testament at all. There's some where people can look at it and say, that seems like it is, but nobody comes out and says anything like that. But through Jesus, God once again reveals more of God's self to us. And Jesus is the full revelation of who God is to us. And, and, and guess what? Jesus reveals God to be Trinitarian. And it blows the minds of everyone who is there. Like, wow, Father, Son, and Spirit. And, and so you see the apostles writing about this in a way that even in Acts chapter 10, you see Trinitarian language that did not exist prior to Jesus because Jesus was changing our mind about God. God's primary work in the world is revealing himself to us so that we can understand more of who we are and what we are doing here. Okay? Everyone also thought God was violent and vengeful. But through Jesus, we understand that God is nonviolent, non-punitive. God is restorative. God is forgiving. God is in the business of, of mercy and, and making things whole again, okay? And this should, in turn, change how we interact with the world around us. God's work is centered upon shaping our view of God so that we can better reflect God in this world. Because listen, if God is revealing something new about God's self to you, it is for a good reason. It is something that, that God is calling you into collaboration with, to work with God in this world um, on some salvation project. If God is revealing something new about himself to you, it is because God wants you to collab wants to collaborate with you on something. He's calling you into his work. Okay? What God revealed to Peter here about these unclean foods being suddenly clean. Um, God could have just revealed this to everyone at the same time. God could have called everyone together and then lowered the sheet down. But it wasn't for them. It was for Peter. It had nothing to do with them. That had nothing to do with their ministry. Okay? God doesn't need them all dealing with this right now. God needs Peter dealing with this. God reveals this specifically to Peter because he had a specific task for Peter that includes um, bringing Cornelius and his household into this reconstituted new Israel. You understand? I hope you do. I want to put it like this. For those of you who have deconstructed your faith, who are struggling, who are trying to rebuild, I want you to know something. God doesn't, re, God doesn't deconstruct your faith for no reason at all. There is a reason God deconstructs people's faith. And I do say God, because I believe God is the one who does the deconstruction, not you. God deconstructs your face because the construct that you had at that time was incapable of assisting you in the work of salvation that God is calling you to do. That is why your faith has been deconstructed. Because God has a job for you. 
and your previous construct, previous faith construct, didn't fit the bill. All right? I hope that creates some hope in some of your life. Um, part of the theory of spiritual maturity it under, is understanding that God is, is calling some people into specific work that he has not called you into. But I have to remember that, that God has called me to do something different. The thing that I'm doing, God has called me to do for whatever reason. And that God has constructed my faith in this way so that I can do this work. Um, and one more thing I'd like, I'd like for you to ponder is how exactly, how exactly our doctrines come into existence. What we have here in Acts chapter 10 is a doctrine coming into existence. And I want you to think about how that happened. One moment, Peter believes one thing about God, and then this sheet lowers, and this thing happens, and then he believes something suddenly different about God, completely different. He believed God was here for the Jewish people to bring everybody into Israel, um, that it wasn't for Gentiles, that Gentiles needed to go through the proper channels. And then suddenly, his entire theology of salvation has changed, as well as his theology of justification, of how things work, and suddenly he believes something different. He has an experience that changes his understanding of God. And then five chapters later, we find Peter in Jerusalem, the center of Judaism, telling all of the world there the gospel of Jesus. The reconciliation of all things to God was open to everyone, not just the Jews. And all of this goes back to a one holy, holy sheet moment. The sheet, sorry. Um, this moment, right? I mean, look at Acts 10, 28. Look at, look at the words coming out of Peter's mouth now. You never would have heard these before. Acts 10, 28. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for Jews to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Okay, that's old Peter. But here's new Peter. It says this. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Wow. Like, that's a 180. Why? Because he had an experience. And what the rest of us understand as church doctrine, Gentiles are, Gentiles are included, justified by faith, not works. What, what we understand as Christian doctrine now, and we think this has always been Christian doctrine, we now have to affirm, actually, it started with an experience. It started with Peter's experience. And Peter's experience was so important for the church that we have now called it doctrine. Because it was a fundamental shift in how we understand God. So the experience of God turns into a doctrine. Doctrines are important in the church because, and I want you to hear this, because a lot of people don't think doctrines are, are important at all. Um, and they tend to sort of sweep them all aside and gloss over, yeah, yeah, Christian doctrine, blah, blah, blah. And they kind of push the doctrines aside, but the doctrines are important because they point back to a moment where God revealed God's self to us, to humanity. When God revealed God's love, inclusion of Gentiles, that is a revelation of God's love that we did not have before. And so that doctrine is vital. Doctrines don't come from stale old men sitting in an ancient boardroom trying to form a systematic theology. That is not where doctrines come from. Doctrines come. Each doctrine has a birthplace, has a moment where it springs to life in existence, into existence. Uh, it's an experience of God. 
And God did not send this stack of rules and say, read this, and then you'll understand me, make a system out of it, systematic theology. Now you will understand my system that I created and how it functions. No, no, no. Doctrines are born out of experience. God sends experiences which we turn into new understandings of God and that we, we pass down his doctrine. Here's what, here's what our forefathers learned about God. And everything we believe today is built off of that. Don't throw that out. That was an experience that was necessary. All right? Each doctrine has a birthplace. It's so desperately important that you be in regular communion with God because God wants to reveal himself to you as well so that you may know God. God doesn't want you to follow him because some set of doctrines makes pragmatic, systematic sense to you. That's useless, okay? One of my biggest fears, honestly, uh, for the people of, of Watermark and for the church at large, but specifically my people, the people of Watermark, my, one of my biggest fears for them is that they will start living pragmatically in ways that just make sense. That is not the path of God. The path of God doesn't make a lot of sense. The path of Christ is not pragmatic. That's what makes it so foreign. I mean, concepts like power in the failure of the cross concepts like gaining your life through losing it concepts like victory through defeat and pouring yourselves out so that others may be filled up these are the opposite of typical western especially specifically american ideas the gospel pushes back against earthly kingdoms every single time because the gospel is not pragmatic we don't win by losing we don't win by loving and turning the other cheek we win by killing. Peace through superior, superior firepower, not peace through superior suffering on the cross. Our identity, we'd like it to be found in a picture of, 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 of powerful weaponry, and we can hang those around our neck like a gold tank. But instead, we hang a, a, an execution device, the modern-day equivalent of like a electric chair right? Like, that's our identity. Um, victory through defeat. These things don't make sense. And Paul's clear in this in, in I mean, first chapter of Corinthians. The, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's not pragmatic. It's not particularly pragmatic at all. These things don't make any sense unless you understand the life and the teachings of death and the resurrection of Jesus. The only way the Christian life makes any sense is if you know Jesus. That is the only way it makes sense. It is not pragmatic to live as Jesus lived. But if you understand who Jesus was and the work that Jesus did, then you understand how these things fit together and how God's future will enter into this world. God wants the doctrines to make sense to you because you know God, not because they're pragmatic. Many people only know God by a set of doctrines. But Paul, I want to point out, didn't say, I know what I believed in and I'm persuaded that, he, that it's able to keep me. You know, Paul didn't say, I know what I believed in. Paul said, I know whom I've believed in. I have believed in Christ, a person, not a system. My commitment 
as even as a pastor, my commitment is to Christ, not Christianity. Christianity can be easily corrupted. Has been many times easily corrupted. My commitment is to Christ. It's to a king and his kingdom, to an announcement, not a system of beliefs. Our theology, if it is to be effective, it must flow from what Jesus has revealed to us, not from what our own understanding of the text says, not from our own pragmatic applications of the Bible to fit nicely into our American life. It is our theology must flow from a place of I have pushed everything aside and I will, instead of fitting Jesus into my life, I'm going to mold my life to fit the body of Christ. All right. Um, let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. Actually, uh, I, I don't have any communion elements today. I don't have any wine in the house tonight. I don't have any bread. Um, so if you have the elements um, after we pray this, uh, this collect prayer, feel free to take communion. Um, but let's pray and then let's do our collect prayer, shall we? Father, be with us. Help us to know you, to really, truly know you. Help us to discern your presence and your voice in our lives. Let us not be led by weak and failed understandings of some kind of pragmatic system of theology. Let us be led by a person who is God in the flesh, the full revelation of who God is present in our midst, who is bringing us together to share his identity with us and to live as he lived so that we can heal as he healed. Let our identity be found not in a religion, but in a person. Let our commitment not be to Christianity, not to evangelicalism, not to any of these words that we make up to, to, to basically put ourselves in tribes of power. Let us, let our commitment be to Christ and Christ alone. Let us look at the world through the lens of Jesus. Let us look at the scriptures through the word of God, who is Jesus. Change us. Heal us. Guide us. In your name. Amen. Let's do our collect prayer together. God, who reconciles all things to yourself, who came to dwell among us, teach us to love as you have loved us. May we let go of the lies embedded in us and replace them with your truth. May we be bold in protecting the weak, speaking for the voiceless, and standing against injustice wherever it occurs. May we recognize the Imago Dei in others, treating them with dignity and respect. Help us to forgive freely, reconciling us to each other. In a chaotic world, let us bring peace, bringing your kingdom to earth in the name of Jesus. Amen. Grace and peace, Watermark. Love all of you. I hope to see you soon.